because, because I'm a hot I'm girl. A hot, I'm girl. I do hot, hot shit. shit. Hot shit. Hot shit. Okay, welcome to the Hot Girl Agenda. I'm your host, Rara Imler, and today we have on the show uh, Samantha Hamilton. Hi, Samantha. How are you? I'm good. I go by Sam. Sam. Okay, cool. (laughs) Sam, how are you doing today? I'm pretty sweaty up in uh, my attic. This is the space where I do yoga, play music, um, chill. It's been hot here in Athens, so. Nice, yeah. It's the opposite up here. It's been rainy. I've been hating it. Like, it's just been like weird monsoon weather in the fall. But, you know, we're dealing. But I like that you have your cave. I've got my cave, too. So you can see, like, I've been like, filming. I've got my wardrobe rack for all my cosplay and stuff. So good. You gotta have, like, you gotta have, well, I call it the bitch cave, but, you know, you probably call it someone, someone, something nicer, right? <laughs> uh, no, I actually don't have a name. Bitch cave is pretty good. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's fitting for the vibe of this, you know. Yeah, yours is a much more, like, chill vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I like, I like what you have going there. Cool. Yeah. So, um, so Sam, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and the type of work you're doing now as a UGA law fellow? Sure. Um, so I just moved to Georgia after a lifetime in California. Um, I lived in the Bay Area, the larger Bay Area for eight years. Um, I went to undergrad at UC Santa Cruz and that was really where I, um, was radicalized, <laughs> at least initially. Um, and then I moved to Oakland right after I graduated. Um, worked in restaurants at night while I studied for the LSAT during the day. Um, trying to get into law school. Uh, went to Berkeley for law school, loved it, um, just graduated in May, got a job out here in Georgia, wasn't planning on, you know, moving to the South at all, but um, I really love the work that I do, so I figured I would cast a wide net in terms of geography, um, so that's sort of the skinny. Uh, I got a job in academia, who would have thought? Um, I certainly didn't, but um, it's it's a pretty cool like mix, uh, I mean, it's not even a mix really. It's in an academic setting, but I'm doing entirely, you know, pro bono work for orgs that can't afford, um, legal services. So it's been really good being able to like have this mass amount of resources to really do, you know, whatever I want. I'm not a barred attorney yet. Um, so I work under the supervision of an attorney, but, um, I'm getting close. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what is the UGA law first, uh, law first amendment clinic? You said that that's where, um, your work is flows out of, right? Yeah, I work there full time. Um, it's the newest legal clinic at UGA. So UGA's law school has legal clinics spanning the areas of veterans law, criminal defense. Um, there's like a child, uh, endangerment and sex exploitation clinic. Um, so we're sort of, joining the front, um, but focusing on First Amendment law. So defending protesters, defending journalists, um, defending people who might not really identify with either group, but are nevertheless engaging in, you know, protected First Amendment activity. We have two cases in active litigation right now. One of them um, is defending um, an older woman. She's like in her 60s who was falsely arrested 
which means that um, cops basically arrested her on, you know, a bullshit charge. Um, she heard a bunch of gunshots outside of her house on Thanksgiving Day, was really freaked out by it. Um, and she called the non-emergency number a couple times. They responded and it turned out that, you know, the sheriff was really good friends with the guy who was doing the shooting. And so... Surprise, surprise, um, the buddy, you know, good old boy system right. resulted in this women's concerns, this little lady's concerns being, you know, totally brushed aside. And a couple months later, so now she has um, a charge on her record, in, um, interference with emergency services. A couple months later, she's at Walmart walking to her car at like 11 p.m. Mm-hmm. Off-duty officer recognized her. Looked her up and apparently saw that she had um, an outstanding warrant on her record and he arrested her on the spot, left all of her groceries in the Walmart parking lot. Um, That's that's horrible. Yeah, yeah. And so um, it's been a really interesting experience trying to talk to her about her experience with the carceral state because this is like, you know, a white woman in her 60s, according Mm -hmm. to She's never, you know, really had any runnings with police. She certainly, you know, doesn't fit into any group that would be profiled by police. And so she spent 36 hours in detention and she's talking about, you know, how how cold it was and how mean everyone was to her and how when she left, you know, she had like an eye infection and a UTI and like all of oh these. Oh my God. All of that these, is like, awful. Yeah. And so, and so she's, you know, complaining about all of these these things that have happened to her, but um, we're having to straddle the line between, you know, acknowledging her experience and, like, recognizing all of, you know, the trauma that she um, felt, while mm-hmm. also, you know, calling attention to the, the fact that, you know, in the broad scheme of things, like, compared to, like, the other things that can happen in police custody, mm-hmm. um, this really isn't that bad. So that's, that's, a, a difficult line to straddle because you definitely want to make your client feel heard. Yeah, that I've heard. I've heard from friends who were in jail in like lockup before that um, they're basically like ice boxes. Like they're like so cold, even in the middle of like summer. Apparently, that it's just basically it, it's almost purposeful in order to like not provide any comfort whatsoever for the entire experience. There is that talking to people that have been incarcerated. Do you feel that, like that's true? Absolutely. Yeah. That is not, that is not their priority. And Mm -hmm. if what we're trying to do is bring what's called a conditions of confinement claim against police, your conditions of your confinement have to be really fucking bad. Like you have to have mostly, unfortunately, what like judges want to see is they want to see that you had some sort of like mental condition, or I'm sorry, not mental. It could be mental, but Mm -hmm. a medical condition that the officers on site just like really disregarded and that condition was exacerbated um, very concretely by the conditions of your confinement. So what's really shitty is that, you know, the system is set up for people to, you know, you really have to like be put through the ringer in order for your harms to be even recognized. Um, And there are a lot of cases where, you know, that that does happen, but Mm -hmm. um, way more people are affected by, these systems then, you know, make the news. Right. And so they're sort of left in this limbo stage where they can't really do anything about it. 
Right. Yeah. And that is such a specific kind of uh, trauma that you get from being uh, just locked up for like a short amount of time and then coming out of it. Uh, like the people I've talked to that have been arrested um, in like the summer protests and everything have all said that it they've been like some of them had been to jail before, but they're like this feels a lot different these days. Like it feels like when you get to jail that they are just so needlessly cruel and like more so than ever before. And I'm wondering if, um, if you're noticing a trend with any of your clients, like, do you think it's like particularly, particularly brutal this year as opposed to other years? Um, having just graduated from law school, I can't really, you know, I, I can't speak to that specifically, but, um, I mean, it's not uncommon for, you know, the neutral arbiters of the law to be, you know, um, carrying out their duties through their own personal lens. Mm -hmm. um, that's just an evergreen issue. But, you know, when it's really blatant and in your face, like it has been the past few months, um, you just have to assume that that is the case. Yeah. So you uh, you mentioned um, your you mentioned your work with First Amendment issues, and I was wondering if you could speak to that situation at City Hall that you were involved with um, regarding one of your colleagues being denied access to city council meetings. Oh, yeah. So um, that was a client of ours. So another, I promise not all our clients are like middle-aged white women. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but this was another middle-aged white, uh, white woman actually in Forest Park in Clayton County. Mm -hmm. And um, so with COVID, like city council meetings have been um, close to the public in terms of physical access, but they're supposed mm -hmm. to be able to, people are supposed to be able to attend like via Zoom or, you know, whatever. Um, and a lot of these local municipalities have not been able to get their shit together. So it's like you log into the Zoom and, um, you know, the sound is really bad or there's a lag or whatever. And um, the city, Forest Park, started um, announcing that their meetings were open to the public beyond. They, the meetings were being held in City Hall, not just, you know, with a bunch of counselors on Zoom. Mm -hmm. And um, this journalist sat down, you know, she walked into a meeting, she sat down and like within seconds, um, a cop came up to her and told her to stand up and said, you need to leave. And she's like, what, why? This is like a public city council meeting. I'm here to just, you know, she's like a local freelance independent journalist. Um, and this cop literally escorted her out the front door saying, you need to leave. And she's like, what, why? And he goes, it was at the mayor's direction. Um, and Georgia actually has a law called the Open Meetings Act that says that any, any member of the public is entitled to um, synchronous live access to public meetings. And it's not really written, I, I'm inserting the word synchronous in there. Um, mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's a word that we're using in the context of COVID because it's what's become really common is for um, public agencies to hold these meetings in accordance with their obligations, but then, so they record them, but then they upload them after the fact. So if your city council is talking about something that you really care about and you want to say something about it during the public comment period, um, you're denied access. You're, you're denied that opportunity because all that's yeah. happening is they're recording, you know, this, this meeting. And they're just like assuming that like no one 
you know, wants to participate. And they have these systems in place where they're like, you can like submit your questions here, you know, submit your comments here. Um, but if you can't actually hear what's going on in the meeting because the audio is so shitty, like mm-hmm. you're, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be able to participate. Um, and so it's really like the, the national like, Issues are really what's sexy at the moment, and I really get that. Um, and of course, it, it's hard to to ignore. But the ways that these kinds of things really transpire are at the local level, um, and so it might not seem as sexy to go to you know like a city council meeting or whatever. Um, oh, they're incredibly boring. Like I won't. I definitely don't spend my free time going mm-hmm. to. Fun- Meeting. I don't um, think anybody has the time, really. <laughs> yeah, but like, we just know that. Like, they know that nobody wants, like, very few people want to go except for, you know, these, like, journalists who, you know, get paid nothing and right. this is, like, their hobby and whatever. So they're counting on that, right? Like, they're mm-hmm. counting on the public to not give a shit. And that's when they, like, sneak in their little, you know, executive right. services that, like, no member of the public is even entitled to access. Um, and then guess what? You're left with a fucking city or city ordinance that like criminalizes homeless people, for example. Right. So. Yeah. Because I was going to say, um, it, it just seems so shady to me. And, and I'm always like a real skeptic about people's like inability to handle technology and stuff like that, especially when it comes to government. It's like, we live in the 21st century. Um, how long have we all had to be quarantined because of COVID? Like, why do you not, like, why do you not have this set up? to be like a live stream or something because other cities you know and this was in atlanta right um yeah right outside atlanta Clayton county yeah so so it's it's really i've seen city council meetings in like la and they were like live streams on like zoom or something so if, if la a city like la can do it you know Clayton County can do it too, right um and it just se- it seems really insidious because you're right these these meetings happen and then suddenly an ordinance passes that the whole community has to um, react to. And instead of being able to be proactive about like helpful laws and ordinances, it is then your job to basically fight back against whatever like weird, cruel law they decided in a, in some, you know, random city hall meeting. So, so your, um, your colleague that got, removed um what is the status with that case because they didn't they file a complaint with the with the city um we we filed a complaint with the state attorney general um and we're also trying to so we sent a complaint to the to the attorney general and to the um the city itself mm-hmm. so usually and you know and we put it on like uga letterhead like i hate that you know that shit like works but like mm-hmm. It does, I guess, and sometimes it can make people, you know, stop doing the fucking thing that they're doing or whatever. Um, not always, but I mean, you know, that's um, that's a measure that. You know. So I'm getting emails from her, like in the middle of the night. She's like, I have another update. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's another, there's another. They've uploaded another, you know, video of a meeting where you can't hear any of the audio, and I'm like, thanks. I'll add that to the letter. <laughs> right. And so. Be the one that enforces this like let's say the complaint um like who does the complaint go to and how sympathetic do you think they are to this kind of issue yeah so at the so when i say that we filed a complaint with the attorney general so that's at the state level right. um but at the same time we're also like sending them letters and trying to like i mean we're not really like 
in like pre-litigation, we're not going to necessarily like bring a case against them. If it gets there, maybe. But right now we're sort of counting on the like, we're hoping that you will just agree to do what we're asking you to do. And if you don't, there's like the intimidation of the state government's enforcement Mm -hmm. um, looming over you. And so apparently, I mean, the state government has this like open government um, fucking page where like anyone can submit um, complaints to the state mm-hmm. regarding like, violations of the Open Meetings Act or of the Open Records Act. So if you're really trying to get some like records that you know are public records, you know that a government agency is holding them um, and they are, you know, unconstitutionally withholding them, you can, there's fortunately, you know, the state um, of Georgia has this like tool that you can use. So how effective is it? I don't actually know. I just got here. (laughs) (laughs) I just got here. I don't even go here yet. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, So, so this, like, this is the kind of stuff that when I hear, I'm like, okay, um, like what is the public supposed to do? Like if they wanted to support this, if they wanted to support this open exchange of information and put pressure on the government, um, what can, what can we do? Are there, would petitioning work? Is there, should we all go and complain about the same thing? It should, is there a coordinated campaign going on that we can join? Great question. Um, <laughs> we have not looked beyond the, um, you know, judicial instruments. And, um, you know, even though I, I try to spend a lot of my time not in, you know, the legal community, um, mm-hmm. having, you know, having just got here, um, I'm not, you know, super familiar with you know, the communities to tap into yet. But if, you know, someone was experiencing this in, say, another town, um, I think everything that you mentioned would definitely be something worth doing. It's like you could have, you know, a a campaign of people like swarming into one of these Zoom meetings and saying like, we can't Mm -hmm. fucking hear you or like, (laughs) you know, the other petitions sort of, you know, I mean, that's always sort of remains to be seen. Um, right. But it's an option, you know, um, but definitely help in numbers for sure. Because right now in this case, um, my perception of, you know, this city, I, I hadn't even heard of Forest Park until mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. Um, but my perception is that they view our client as, you know, this like haggard, you know, lady who's like writing really critical articles about, you know, city council members. Um, right. And, that no one is listening and no one cares, but mm-hmm. that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard. It's like, uh, uh, I think people really, I mean, even if you understand the value of city hall meetings, like people like you and me understand the value of city hall meetings, not a lot of working class people have the time to engage with these things, which is why having a recording of them and knowing when like important votes are coming up is so important because if you do have a strong feeling either way about the things they're talking about, you want to be involved. Um, I've been to a city council meeting where the housing justice league of Atlanta was basically trying to stop a development deal going through that would go like right through a really, really, really uh, poor part of town and basically displace, you know, a lot of residents and the city council people, you know, they, it was a pretty open meeting. This is way, this is like way pre-COVID. This is like a couple years ago, I think. But, you know, the developers were there, like the consultants for the developers were there. And the only thing that I think 
jarred people out of uh, jarred people out of apathy for the situation was that there were a bunch of people from Housing Justice League there passionately advocating, you know, against this development, this really harmful development. And I think that's really important to show the will of the community. But it also is like a sacrifice to to have, you know, it is a privilege to be able to show up to these meetings on a, you know, semi-regular basis. So I, I, I hope that that issue gets resolved and that um, and that we can see some progress there because it, there really is no um, there's no like non insidious excuse for not having a microphone and camera set up, you know, in a government facility. I mean, you and I are talking right now from different cities like and we're using a pretty accessible platform and we don't have like amazing equipment either. So it's like, it, what is our government doing? You know? Yep. 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 Exactly. Yeah. And speaking of, um, of media access, you are also working on fighting for increased access to media, uh, executions, uh, in Georgia. Um, just like, like there's groups in Arizona and Virginia doing that. Can you talk about your work, uh, with that and what that means? Yeah, so we are in the very early stages of a partnership with the Georgia Resource Center, with, which is um, an anti-death penalty group here in Georgia. And we are really just, you know, pushing for um, incremental, incre- you know, I mean, I don't want it to be incremental, but that's the nature mm-hmm. of it. Um, increased access to state executions um, via Georgia's death penalty. So what I have done is I have looked through transcripts and reports of every um, execution that the state has has done since 2015 um, and looked for specifically evidence where audio access would be super crucial in a case. So the way that state executions work in Georgia um is that the the person on the gurney, the condemned is the phrase, is the word that the state uses. It's ridiculous. Um, they get like a they get like two minutes to say their to give their final statements. And a lot of people, you know, I, I was surprised at the number of so from 2015 to 2020, I think I've looked at maybe I would say maybe around like 20 different um, cases. And a surprising number of people say that they just want to wave their last words. They have nothing else to say. Um, other people say, keep rocking in the free world. You know, like, there's, there's, they're not really <laughs> anything, like, you know, super groundbreaking. Um, but still, it's like, that's, you know, what you choose to do. You know, if, if a human life, life is made up of, you know, thousands of minutes, it's like, I don't think that, you know, we should judge someone based on like how prolific their last two minutes, you know, of, of their life are. Um, right. something kind of funny that I, that I noticed when I was looking through these. But so, but that's the only time you, that you hear from the condemned. And I, I don't even want to, you know, use their term anymore, but, right. um, so very few people are afforded access, witness access to these executions. Um, in Georgia, I believe the policies are like, you know, on the internet somewhere. And so forgive me if I, if I get this wrong, but it's like, there's, there's one, um, media monitor, which is usually someone from the Associated Press, um, who watches and takes notes. And then they're the ones who like disseminate their account to other news outlets. And then you have 
two or three journalists from like specific news outlets. Um, it tends to be people from like the AJC or CNN, you know, um, when they're happening in Georgia. Um, so you have these media monitor, these like, you know, journalists, the, the professional witnesses or whatever walk in um, and sit in this room. They're literally like pews. They're like church pews. And um, and then you have other witnesses. You have like the family members of the person who's about to get killed. Um, you have the family members sometimes, depending of the people who that person, you know, killed because usually it's it's crimes. um of murder and so you know it's like really like sadistically cathartic i guess for you know the families of um this person's victims to sit and watch their family members killer be killed by someone else and like for some reason that makes them feel really good about themselves and that makes them feel like you know justice has been done or whatever um but not a lot of people get to watch these things. And so after looking all after looking through all of these accounts, um, people get their two minutes of their last words, but people have made notes that like, so outside of that, the mic, the microphone is completely off. And I'm sorry, I, I forgot to mention that everyone is behind glass. There's like a, a wall of glass. So you can't really hear what's happening on the other side unless there's a microphone turned on and the microphone is only on for those two minutes. But um, in several of these accounts, the um, witnesses that we had there said that they could tell, you know, once the drugs were, like, pulsing through this person's fucking veins, that, like, they mouthed something to um, to the, the, like, medical staff who were there. I can't even call them medical. But, like, to the staff, you know. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're, yeah. You know, killing this person. You can you can tell they're they're like yeah I can see that you know they're mouthing something to them but I can't tell what they're saying or you would see them you know like whisper something to themselves or they would you know it's just there's a lot oh of God. yeah there's like movement yeah it's, and it's like it's very gruesome but it, it's clear that there's some kind of communication that's happening outside of this two minute window and mm-hmm. someone is experiencing you know excruciating pain that's something that the public you know would want to know and. Absolutely. And and none of the, the accounts that I read involved someone like writhing in pain, you know, physically. Um, but I do think that, you know, what is muttered in those moments is really important. And so this is the theory that um, Georgia Resource Center is, is working on to um, try to increase access with the hopes that, you know, and it's like, and really like this is only one tool it's a very like minor tool in the broader, bigger fight of trying mm-hmm. to combat the death penalty itself. You know, it's like it's really trying to see what appeals to the court and, right. um, you know, I mean, journalists, I guess, are a class of persons who some judges might find more sympathetic than you know, murderers or someone else or someone who like committed you know an act that like got them on you know, they're to begin with. So, yeah, I, you know, I didn't even realize that this was an issue until you sent me this link to it, but it is really disturbing to think that, you know, these people, no matter what they've done in their final moment, their final moments should be properly documented. Um, if, If only to shine a light on the fact that it is pretty barbaric, the death penalty process and execution process. And I'm sure like, 
if more people were aware of what could go wrong and how it can be botched, that I don't think people would be as confident in that process. Um, and, you know, it's always good to be critical because even in, you know, punishment like that, uh, there's no need for cruelty or pain um, or torture. And it sounds like in some of these cases, it was straight up like a torturous death, which is awful to think about. Um, because this is like the state issuing it and it should never be the case, right? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> that got really, that was really heavy. That was a very yeah. heavy, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's good. It's, it's important though, because again, um, a lot of the issues you were bringing up, you know, this is stuff that people on a regular basis don't really think about as far as like media access, uh, and transparency is so critical and important, especially now. When, you know, our own government is so committed to spreading like disinformation and stuff like that. It's like we kind of need to have, you know, as citizens, we need to have the full picture of what it is that's happening around us um, so that we don't um, have our opinions formed with, you know, half information or misinformation. Um so you also, uh, just to pivot a little bit, um, you also worked with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I had never heard of this organization before. Um, what is it that the organization does and what are some of the projects you were involved with during your time there? Yeah, so uh, I forget what their slogan is. It's something like, fighting for your rights in the digital <laughs> age. Like, <laughs> their, yeah. their thing is, is, is basically, you know, social justice um, and tech. So as an org, they've been around, I think, about as long as the Internet, like in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And I did a little stint with them while I was in law school. Um, I loved my experience. Some of my favorite things that I worked on um, was analyzing ICE's practice of creating fake accounts on social media. Or I'm sorry. Um, well, yeah, ICE and police, um, creating fake accounts on social media in order to collect information on people. So specifically what was happening at the time was um, ICE had developed, the, they made these like fake ads, like fake Facebook ads advertising free college classes. Huh. And it got undocumented people to enter their fucking personal information and then these ICE, these ICE agents would, like, show up at their house, show up at their place of work, and fucking detain them. Uh, that's disgusting. Yeah, I, it's literally disgusting. And and this is ICE, but, like, mm -hmm. the, the, the practice of making fake social media accounts, that's, like, totally legal. And that's something yeah. that, like, not just cops, but, like, FBI, like, fucking anybody. Like, Facebook, mm -hmm. you know, I think a couple of years ago they came up with this policy stating that, like, you had to use your your real name when you made a government account and, or a Facebook account, and a lot of like um, queer and trans activists were like pushing back against that because they were like, "Fuck you!" Like my government name, you know. Is yeah, not like it's your it's your dead name. Yeah, it's super. Yeah, that's yeah. not good. <laughs> Exactly. So it's like, I'm not going to make my fucking Facebook account with that fucking name. Like, fuck you. Also, it's not a government, you know, it, Facebook isn't a government agency. Why the hell do they need your information like that? Like, it's yeah. it's pretty invasive, yeah. especially given the uh, high amounts of, you know, abuse and doxing and harassment that um, undocumented people get all the time. Like, it was, it's really, uh, it is not a, 
it's not a good business model to alienate people that cannot use their given name or, you know, their real identity. Um, it, it's definitely, that's very concerning for sure. <laughs> Dude, you should not build that into your fucking like capitalist business model. If that, if that's what you're thinking about. Yeah. And these models are already, I mean, it, it makes it so much easier to target people that are vulnerable. You know, like if someone has a last name that isn't, you know, an Anglo or American last name, you know, who knows what could happen and, and like how that can backfire on you. Yeah. So you actually did work with, um, uh, work with or for undocumented people in Tijuana, right? When the mi migrant caravan was coming over the border and, you know, the press was kind of all over that. Um, and, you know, conservatives were freaking out about that. What was, uh, what was that work like? What did you do exactly? So, um, I'm from San Isidro, which is the, it's like a, um, a suburb, if you can call that, call it that of, of San Diego. And it's basically as far Southeast as you can get before crossing the border. Um, so this was just something that I did when I was home, you know, on winter break and, um, a friends of a few friends of mine who are, from there, we're like, hey, we're going to, you know, bring a bunch of they were like collecting donations and stuff. Um, and I was home for three weeks and I was like, yeah, sure. I'll, you know, I'll come with you. And so for three weeks, we would go um, several times a week to bring like, I don't know, just like toys, clothes, um, whatever they needed to like set up this warehouse and turn this warehouse into a place that was habitable. Unfortunately, it never really was. So um, there was this like giant warehouse that at the time, I think at, at its max occupancy, it, it fit about like 500 people. Um, and, and these were all folks who were coming from the migrant caravan um, that started in Central America. But people had, you know, hopped on along the way. I met some folks from, you know, Honduras. I met some folks from Mexico City. And for some people, like their end goal was to go to the US was to cross the border. But for a lot of them, they were like, Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I just wanted a ride, you know, from Guatemala, um, up to TJ. So I'm just gonna like, <laughs> I'm just gonna like, here. Um, so yeah, and like, fortunately, you know, I mean, my parents don't live in um, Mexico. Unfortunately, I was able to like just cross and, you know, with my passport and it was right. easy peasy, you know, but it, it's wild because like just on the other side were, you know, people, you know, fucking fighting for their lives. Like so many children too. Um, yeah. a lot of young single men. And, um, what was actually really beautiful was watching sort of the development of community policing. Mm -hmm. and watching out like watching how people can like look out for each other in a way that isn't necessarily like the state being punitive um but finding their own ways to like you know regulate the kinds of behavior that happened in there so to mm -hmm. be more concrete um one of the activists who i was working with was able to raise you know he started to go fund me and raise like I don't know, like $12,000 or something. Like it was enough to pay at, at least one month's rent for this like giant warehouse where there were like 500 people staying, mm -hmm. shit ton of tents, um, regardless of whether people came there with tents or not. Um, but 
it wasn't really, it wasn't like cordoned off. So you would have families with, you know, a bunch of small children and you would have a bunch of, you know, single men who were traveling by themselves. And this is all, you know, anecdotal. I don't have any, you know, statistics or facts to back this up. But um, people were saying that not necessarily at this facility, but at others, there were issues of um, sexual abuse victimization among, you know, the migrants themselves. And, you know, when you have thousands of people rounded up in, in close quarters, I'm not going to say it's inevitable and we have to just shrug our shoulders at it, but like that shit is going to happen. How do you do And so watching this community deal with it over short times was wild. So the people who had like established their residence there, who had like there, we found a way some, I don't, I don't know where they got them, but, they basically decided to put like wristbands on, on the wrists of people who were there and they would have like a person, you know, make sure that the people who came through actually lived there after, you know, like a certain hour. Um, and it was just really cool watching, you know, people who had, and I don't, I don't know how long they had, you know, been together. Maybe they had been working on these relationships over the last few months. Mm-hmm. Um, but having seen only a very short snapshot of their interactions with each other, I was like, damn, dude, like, this shit, this shit can't be that hard. <laughs> I mean, those conditions are, I mean, I feel like those conditions, too, are, I mean, it, it, it forces you to come up with solutions, you know, that uh, that don't involve, like, authorities in that regard. Because, it, I mean, I think introducing a police element to that doesn't sound like it would make it any safer, you know? Like, so I think people, people that are in that situation, I think inherently know that, that introducing another kind of policing element is not the best way to go. Um, that's interesting to like find out though, exactly how they, they would deal with things like that. Okay. Um, I'm trying not to say, um, too much. Cause I have to edit out all of my ums when I edit a podcast. <laughs> heard a single um come out of you i've been cognizant about it because the last couple episodes i had to edit i would had to edit so many ums that i like internalized it and i was like i'm not doing this anymore i'm gonna be better damn it (laughs) so you talk about um obviously all this work is uh is very seeming like so intentional for you it seems like what was your radicalizing moment when you began this work? Like, was it when you began this work or was it before? Um, I think the word moment is really good because it's, it really is just like a bunch of different interactions that you have with people. Sometimes it's like, you know, attending a two hour lecture by, you know, Cornell West who, you know, would come and visit cruise yeah or like like Angela Davis was like you know a professor emerita like at UC Santa Cruz so she would come all the time and like fortunately like I had so much um really unfettered access to like you know these these radical um academics I will you know which you know asterisk um <laughs> but still who are not but still who are known for like you know they're really revolutionary ideas and I'm so grateful to have you know um been exposed to that so early on but um I would say that, you know, my radicalization really started 
incrementally when, I mean, I don't, I think the first time I ever had like a semblance of like some kind of like political consciousness was like in middle school. Um, because my parents would just say like racist shit, like all the fucking time, like in passing. And, um, and over time, I, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't, when I was a smaller kid, like I was like afraid, like so afraid of my parents. Um, there are reasons for that. But, um, over time, I just, I started feeling, you know, more emboldened to like push back or, or at least like ask them, ask them why. And, um, I think that is a good practice that I've tried to hold on to, um, now as, you know, a fully, fully sentient, you know, adult. It's it's like fully fledged adults. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'm just. Yeah, no, I feel you on that because uh, it, it is something about being a child, and you know, um, it, I think I, I think like kids have a really strong sense of right and wrong, but we also have to we also defer to authority, which is kind of like how a lot of uh, American kids grow up. So when we start pushing back against it, it feels very uh, dangerous, but it also feels really good to question the things that you were taught, you know, especially if they're contrary to the things you see with your own two eyes like that must been that must have been really difficult for you did you have anyone in your life early on personally that supported you with those like endeavors no I mean not really I I I kind of felt really alone on that front like I had a couple friends here and there who you know in middle school high school I could tell that they were I didn't use this term at the time but like I, I could tell that they were you know, like more woke than I was, you know, in like what, seventh, eighth grade. <laughs> but it's, but it was, you know, looking back now, I'm like, oh, it's literally because your parents like had advanced degrees. Like the reason that you were talking about politics with such sophistication in high school is because people were talking about that at home and my, my parents weren't at home. And so, you know, um, sometimes now it's still, it, it feels like I'm playing catch up, right. To like, yeah feel like I can actually be conversant in some of these um, conversations, which might feel, which might sound kind of funny coming from someone who just graduated from law school, but it's like the, the pressures within, you know, radical circles to like having read all of the pertinent, pertinent authors to know all of the theory doing your homework. (laughs) And it's like, I, I don't want to knock that because that shit is absolutely important. And like, reason why like people have spent fucking decades of their lives thinking about this shit and um and you know i it's it's definitely something worth paying attention to because you know they spent more than you know my lifetime you know just writing about it um so the least i can do is read a fucking essay (laughs) but you're right though it 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 can feel very because you know i'm not an academic my parents were luckily both school teachers so i did get a little bit more of a I guess they taught me a lot more about critical thinking as opposed to telling me like actual facts and concepts and stuff like that. It was more just like a focus on like, if you have a question, go find the answer to it, but also, you know, be skeptical of where these answers are coming from. And I think that was a much more valuable tool for them to give me as parents than if they were just to tell me what they knew to be the truth. Um, and just to be like, this is what happened in history, this, this, and this, and this is what I believe. They gave me the tools to figure that stuff out on my own. I mean, they had their own opinions, obviously, but I think that's like a, such a critical part of learning 
is critical thinking and being able to disseminate information. And that gets lost because people get really caught up in like the actual like academic parts and don't really don't really pay attention to like how those ideas are being distributed to the masses. And like the best educators I know are the ones that take their knowledge and kind of filter it in a way where it is accessible to, you know, the layman basically. Um, and that's how I feel about, that's how I feel about like education in general. It's like, you don't have to be a scholar to, to synthesize these ideas or to engage in them, but it, it, it is really difficult. They don't like, because of our education system, it doesn't make it easy to access these ideas or, you know, or it's not talked about in mainstream media. So it becomes these like, what is considered a f like fringe issues and that's like there's not enough eyes on it basically to keep us all focused on like why these things are important completely agree what um what grades do your parents teach um my mom she was a special ed teacher for a really long time um and then she kind of bounced in between uh elementary school grades i think she teaches fourth grade now if i'm not mistaken um and my my father was also a special ed teacher, but he taught um, in like a federal program that was like for gifted and talented kids. So it was kind of like the other end of the spectrum, like the kids that would get pulled out of class to do like the special fun classes. Um, so he like had that. And then he went to uh, teaching elementary school after that. He's retired now. Like a lot of times when I was a kid, my dad was my teacher or my mom was my teacher. <laughs> so I was like the dorky kid in class who went home with their parent who also Whatever. was a teacher. <laughs> my mom is also a teacher. And my mom specifically nice. is um, a special ed preschool teacher. Oh, wow. So That's teaching, tough. Yeah, I know. So she was teaching, well, the special ed part, now she's just a preschool teacher. Hmm. But the special ed part, she was like um, teaching deaf people of like all ages from like high school and below. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. In the Philippines crazy yeah yeah my parents are my parents are both on guam they taught in guam and so with special education there i mean the the school systems there are awful they're some of the worst in the country so my mom who was teaching special ed she would have like grades you know like two to four and she would have all different kinds of kids kids with like down syndrome kids with like uh, ADHD kids who are just like behavioral issues that the the teachers didn't want in the regular classroom. Horrible. So it was just like, you know, I, I think that was part of my radicalization at a very young age, even though I didn't realize it until a little bit later, was just seeing like what my parents had to deal with as teachers and working in a system and just trying to like take care of these kids and make sure that they were like prepared for life. Yeah, it's definitely, I would love to do a whole other episode with a bunch of different teachers because uh, I have mad respect for teachers. Yeah. If you're out there, uh, we love you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Hang in there. laughs> so are you doing, um, is UGA on online classes right now or are you doing like in-person classes? Oh my God, that is a huge issue. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm pretty disconnected from like the broader UGA campus. Right. Um, so you said you just graduated, right? I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just graduated from um, UC Berkeley from law school. So I came here for the following fall semester at UGA. So um, fortunately, all I do is, you know, I, I I have my own, you know, little private office and I meet with like, you know, in terms of like physical interaction, I like physically see another person, like 
maybe one or two other people a day. Um, so it does feel, you know, pretty safe on like the COVID front, but like the broader UGA campus is fucking like COVID frenzy. Uh, yeah, that's what it feels like all across. I've been seeing like videos and stuff from like University of Tennessee or University of Texas and like all these other campuses where people are just partying their ass off. It's like cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious what your opinion is on the like responsibility of the individual versus the institution. It really just like depends, I think, on what this, the topic is. Um, I think the institution's lack of accountability and lack of ability to address certain issues within the education system make it so that the responsibility falls on the individual too much to catch up with their own education. So I'd say it is more of an institutional thing. I think also, especially when you're dealing with education and access to it and access to resources, um, we're dealing with like generations of poverty that are you know, it, the, the problem keeps replicating itself because the issues of poverty and education is, you know, who has who has the time to take the, their kids to tutors? Who has the time to uh, sit with their kids after school and do their homework with them? Who has the time to go to PTA meetings and to be involved in uh, parent teacher organizations and uh, and to take their kids to extracurriculars that would um, help their ability to like process uh, you know, ideas and concepts or even just like develop themselves physically and mentally. So I think it is like a failure, an institutional failure when kids do not get what they need out of that for sure. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was great talking to you. Thank you so much. Is there somewhere online where you feel comfortable with people following you or your work? I mean, I guess my Twitter, um, I don't really tweet that much, but I should, I probably should. Um, yeah, it's what I have right here. It says um, underscore Sam Ham. Yeah, there are two underscores. Don't be deceived. Two underscores. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much and uh, good luck with all your work. Please uh, keep posting about what you do because I'll boost it whenever I see it. Um, I think these are just like, it, your work is super important and thank you so much for doing it. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, learning the outcomes for some of the things we talked about. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.